Welcome to episode 1181 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast at Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. My name is Ben Lindbergh. I write for TheBringer.com. I am joined by Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs. Hello, Jeffrey. Hi. Wait, no. No, (laughs) just Jeff. No, Jeffrey. (laughs) Benjamin. (laughs) Well, technically accurate, but yeah. Okay, just trying something new after uh, 1181 episodes. It'll be a one-time experiment. So we are doing a team preview podcast today. It is going to be the Red Sox with Alex Spear of the Boston Globe and the Reds with C. Trent Rosecrans of the Athletic Cincinnati couple quick things to get to before then. First, I am back in the off-season free agent contract prediction game, courtesy of Logan Morrison and the lack of a market for Logan Morrison, because I was trailing by quite a bit. So for those of you who were not with us when we drafted, we we drafted over-unders essentially on free agent contracts. And if someone is over by a certain amount and we picked over, then we get the amount of money that he is over his estimate at MLB Trade Rumors to start the offseason. And same for under. And so you were winning by more than $30 million cumulatively. But Logan Morrison just about wiped that out entirely by himself because he was projected to make $36 million by MLB Trade Rumors, and instead he will be making $6.5 million, at least that is <laughs> the guaranteed salary. He may end up making a bit more than that, but that pulls us almost even. I think I'm trailing you by about $4 million now, but... I think you still have the edge in this thing. Each of us has two unsigned players remaining, and I like yours better than mine. You've got the under on Lance Lynn and Mike Moustakis, and I have the over on Jake Arrieta at $100 million and the under on Jonathan Lucroy at $24 million. So I would say you are set up to take this thing. But Logan Morrison, that is not a lot of money for Logan Morrison. Yeah, he got a—I think Logan Morrison gets considered in the exact same category as Yonder Alonso. They both had similar seasons. They both made similar changes. And I don't know, Alonso got, what, two years and $16 million, I think, mm-hmm. from the Indians. And Morrison got kind of that, except not guaranteed. He's got like a vesting option or something. I haven't seen the specifics of his contract yet. Similar deals where you figure for both Alonso and Morrison, they're getting pay raises based on what they did last year. But very clearly, there's not a whole lot of buy-in in terms yeah. of what they became. Which maybe isn't very surprising because if you analyze what Alonzo did and what Morrison did, what they really did was have like two really good months and then they kind of looked like yonder Alonzo and Logan Morrison and it just so happened those good months happened at the start of the season. And so you probably get some perspective of pitchers got hurt and then they adjusted and then Alonzo and Morrison became themselves again. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, I like... Uh, I like what the Twins did because to get Morrison for $6.5 million, it's 
It's yeah. basically nothing. Uh, yeah. There's really no concern here. And from the Twins' perspective, in their division, there's one really good team. And then there's three of like the four worst teams in baseball. So what we uh, what we don't have yet is a good measure of schedule strength for the season ahead. I'm sure Fangraphs uh-huh. will do something about that soon, probably written by me and definitely <laughs> written by me. But for now, we have projected standings, but they don't consider the schedules. And the AL West, I don't think there's a bad team, AL East not convinced there's a terrible team and in the AL Central there's three terrible teams so this is a good opportunity for the Twins I know that their additions have been sort of unsexy they haven't made that like Darvish splash and they obviously didn't get Otani and it doesn't even seem like they have room for an Alex Cobb or Lance Lynn who are already not very sexy but they have about 13 starting pitcher options Mm -hmm. so I don't know where the Twins are going to go but Morrison just so cheap it's incredible to me that he was so cheap and it's incredible to me that the royals were like do we aren't interested even though at the start of the offseason logan morrison was like i would love to play in kansas city i would love nothing more than to play for the royals it would make me very proud this is not a direct quote this is paraphrased but it's essentially what he said and the royals are like nah we're content with our crap at both (laughs) of our corner infield positions bad players for the royals we talked about this last week. Yeah, I'm, the Twins have a, a pretty excellent offense. I mean, they had one of the better offenses in baseball last year, too. And obviously, a lot of their guys are young enough that you expect them not to take steps back and potentially to take steps forward. We saw what Byron Buxton did after his extremely, extremely slow start to last offseason. And then you're adding Logan Morrison to that mix. It's unclear how much time Miguel Sano might miss if he ends up being suspended, which still seems to be unclear. But this is a, a really talented offense, and they have made sort of additions on the margins in a number of places this winter and bullpen moves and that sort of thing. But, you know, I I think they were probably the team that a lot of people picked last year of the postseason field not to be back this year, but they've done a a decent amount to at least make a return trip more likely. It's sort of a a breakouty sort of offense that they have. Part of that is now they have Morrison, who just had his best season. Byron Buxton sort of looks like he's sort of figured something out. Eddie Rosario became a good hitter last year. And Jorge Polanco, well, actually, now that I look at it, Jorge Polanco did not become a good hitter. My bad. He was fine before, <laughs> but he became and he remained average. But in any case, there were a lot of Twins players last year who took meaningful steps forward in terms of like their uh, their discipline, their approach. I don't know how much of that was just facing a lot of bad pitching in the division, which is something you can't ever really rule out. But in any case, they are a more interesting team than I think they're given credit for. It's not a team that has like a, a superstar unless you really buy into Brian Dozer or unless you maybe really buy into the best parts of Byron Buxton's game. But as you go through the the starting rotation depth chart, this is... There's no one great. It's Jose Barrios is the potentially great one. And then there's some bounce back hope and Jake Odorizzi and Irvin Santana, Kyle Gibson. We know they're fine. And Audibal Sanchez, who even knows? But like Trevor May is coming back off, I think, Tommy John surgery. And he's going to be stretched out as a starter. And he could be good. And Phil Hughes says he's healthy. And Adalberto May... I'm not going to go down the list because there are a few names on here I don't even know how to pronounce. But the Twins are not... It's the pitching staff is not as bad as I've thought, uh, not because it has a whole lot of quality at the top, but just because there are a lot of options that are going to uh, 
make themselves available coming up through the farm and you know at, at the end of the day the twin season might be defined by what happens with fernando rodney closing but yeah. at least it's not dull yeah well can we just skip the twins preview podcast now was that enough i guess <laughs> we'll still yes, get to I guess, it <laughs> yeah. it'll be a shorter podcast that day yeah by the way i mentioned this in my recent piece about player revenue and craig edwards has a post about it on Fangraphs right now but it it is kind of intriguing if you look at the actual contracts that have been signed this offseason obviously it's been an extremely historically slow moving market and lots of guys are still unsigned but among the players who have signed their contract totals logan morrison aside have generally not been that far from what was estimated what was predicted for them last year before we all realized that this was going to be an anomalous market especially if you look at the top of the market if you look at the guys who have signed for sizable contracts those guys are making more in many cases than at least the Fangraphs crowd, the readers projected them to make in surveys last October and November. Guys like Hosmer and Kane, I guess, and even Martinez and Darvish, all of them, if you compare to their crowdsource estimates, were there or above. And some of the guys who've ended up signing smaller deals, like Logan Morrison, for instance, have ended up below the market's estimates. But it's not clear yet, and of course this could change because a number of really good free agents are still unsigned and may sign for less than they were expected to sign because they've had to wait so long. But it's not clear that the slow-moving market has also been a really depressed, suppressed salary market. It's kind of mostly been slow, but when at least the prominent guys have signed, they've signed for something resembling what we thought they would sign for. And I, I wonder, with guys like Morrison or Yonder Alonso, we're going to talk to Alex Spear in just a few minutes about how league-wide trends can just change out of nowhere, seemingly, and maybe teams are being a bit wary about guys who embrace the, the airball revolution or change their swing. And who knows if you show up and the ball is suddenly different or pitchers have found a way to counteract that kind of approach. And uh, there was the report last week that Rob Manfred is either going to or thinking about having every baseball stored in a humidor in every stadium for this coming season. I think they're going to have all the balls stored in a a closed door room and then the, right. the humidity and temperature are going to be tracked and then baseball will yeah. use that information to determine whether balls need to be stored in a humidor right. moving forward. I don't know what's going to... might not be all that different right now. I, I mean, yeah, you have to store the balls in like a, an air-conditioned room, which, you know, probably most teams are already doing. So just for 2018, it doesn't mean we're suddenly going to see anything different because of that. Yeah. But, but yeah, long-term, they're could be a situation where it's really standardized which would be yeah. different and we have no idea what changes could happen because we don't actually know at what temperature and humidity balls are being stored right now so mm -hmm. could mean more home runs could mean fewer home runs could mean no real difference at all maybe this is sort of uh the the league's effort to push back against pitchers saying that the ball was different in the playoffs and especially in the world series they're just looking for consistency and if we're going to be honest they're probably 
should be as much consistency in the baseball as possible between ballparks. And yeah. it's great that the fields are all different, but yeah, we should probably have the baseballs be the same and feel the same in every stadium as, as much as possible. Yeah. So just to extend our streak of talking about the Rays in every intro banter for the last few podcasts, right before we started recording, there was some news that the Rays are negotiating a, a new long-term TV contract with Fox Sportsnet that would take them through like 2033 and they've had one of the least lucrative tv contracts and that has been one of the factors that has hamstrung their spending and so it sounds like that will be increasing significantly soon that they are making like 35 million for their tv deal this year and so maybe that's one reason why logan morrison's old team will not be logan morrison's new team but this deal supposedly will pay them like 50 million as soon as next year and then going up to 82 million something like that so this is the first time in a while that we've heard about a new lucrative long-term tv contract it sort of seemed like that boom or that bubble had really already enveloped every team that it was going to envelop and that maybe anyone who missed out was just going to miss out permanently because everyone would realize that with people moving away from having cable at all that maybe there wouldn't be money in this but it looks like at least the Rays maybe will sneak in under that wire and, and make more money which doesn't mean that we'll suddenly see the Rays as huge spenders or something but maybe it will make them be a, a little more free with their payroll starting as soon as next year did the braves ever find a way out of their tv deal or are they still stuck with like the worst one in baseball i think they are right there must be a a term that is ending sometime soon fortunately for them they've convinced taxpayers to pay for stadiums at every level of their organization so (laughs) that makes it easier uh let's see we've got a you know what i'm not going to read this article just live on the podcast uh i'll I'll just give you a quote here uh this is an article from the atlanta journal constitution last march this is by tim tucker and we've got a last name i can't pronounce that was then asked at monday's conference how far under market the braves local tv deal remains quote our deal is certainly not the worst he said Mm. i think there's upside to our deal because we have one of the largest footprints potentially but it really won't be for a while until we can recognize that In other words, it is one of the worst, so I don't care about this (laughs) spin quote. Braves, bad TV contract, not out of it yet, but yes, there are always the good old-fashioned taxpayers. All right, one last thing I wanted to mention. This is a little tidbit from Craig Wright's excellent newsletter, Pages from Baseball's Past, baseballspast.com. I've plugged this before. I really enjoy it. It's uh, sort of a blend of stats and history from very influential early sabermetrician. So this recent edition is about Death to Flying Things Ferguson. Everyone knows Bob Ferguson, the late 19th century player, because his nickname, Death to Flying Things. Although, as I discovered, he was not the first player nicknamed Death to Flying Things. He was actually teammates with the first Death to Flying Things, which was outfielder Jack Chapman, who wasn't around as long, and the nickname was just sort of repurposed because it was so good that it couldn't be allowed to die with Jack Chapman's career. Jack Chapman was an outfielder, and Bob Ferguson was an infielder, so really the death-defying things made more sense for an outfielder. Anyway, the tidbit that stood out to me here 
This is uh, an account of a game on June 14th, 1870, when Bob Ferguson was the captain and the catcher for the Brooklyn Atlantics. They were taking on the Cincinnati Red Stockings, who at the time were on a 130-game winning streak, (laughs) Uh, 81 official games and 49 exhibition games. They were... Of course, the the first team to truly professionalize, so they were great. They were better than everyone else, so they had an almost two-year winning streak going at this point. So interesting thing about this, Ferguson was usually a right-handed batter, and he had batted righty the whole game until his final trip to the plate. And then, according to the Brooklyn Daily Eagle, Fergie then took the bat and, with commendable nerve, batted left hand to get the ball out of shortstop George Wright's hands. So Bob Ferguson was the first professional baseball player identified as switch hitting in a game. He was not a true switch hitter. He did it from time to time. But this time he was doing it not to get a platoon advantage, but to avoid hitting the ball to a specific fielder. So George Wright, Hall of Fame shortstop, good defender. Can you imagine this ever making sense for a contemporary player? Like, say say you've got, I don't know, the Angels infield doesn't really make sense because all their fielders are really good. But say you had Andrelton Simmons on one side and you had, I don't know, Dan Ugla on the other side (laughs) but but the the side that you're more likely to be pulling ground balls to is not your your strong hitting side Uh, how how competent would you have to be as a hitter i guess to turn around and try to avoid the andrelton simmons side yep nope (laughs) no (laughs) yeah probably i mean uh, yeah it's a question of how of competence i guess but if you just don't know how to bat lefty at all you're probably still going to spray the ball to the other side because your swing is bad so i would love to know the outcome yeah this is probably a bad strategy but credit for innovation i guess and one other tidbit from the story this is right he says the most fascinating detail from the reports of the game is the earliest record i've ever found of pitch counts in a professional game at the time there was no defined strike zone and conditional rules where a taken pitch did not have to be a ball or strike but could be the same as a foul ball a nothing pitch neither a ball nor a strike The batters could be unusually selective, and this game gave us clear evidence of that and the extent to which it was true. Asa Brainard of the Red Stockings threw 283 pitches to 44 batters, and George Zetline of the Atlantics threw 268 pitches to 47 batters. Combined, that's 6.05 pitches per batter, or about 60% more than the modern batter sees. One might expect that to slow a game down, But this 1870 game of 11 innings was played in 2 hours and 35 minutes, over an hour shorter than one would expect for an 11-inning game today. That's uh, that's interesting because we think of one of the reasons why games are longer today is that there are more pitches thrown and people tend to go to deeper counts. But it's also really largely the time between pitches, and that was obviously dramatically different back then when you weren't really trying to miss the bat you were just trying to let the batter put the ball in play to a certain extent at least or at least you were closer to that era of baseball and so guys were not like throwing overhand as hard as they possibly could they were just kind of lobbing it in there and so you didn't need to take much time between pitches because your arm wasn't tired or anything so I think that sort of speaks to just how much of the time of game pace of game length of game 
problem, if you think it is one today, is just the fact that guys are throwing so hard and they're going for strikeouts. And yes, they're throwing more pitches, but also they're just recharging essentially between every pitch because it takes so much out of them. Yeah. If you ever go throw the ball around with a friend and you start to, you know, air it out a little bit, you find that it's quite fatiguing. And you can imagine that if you're throwing harder and harder and thinking harder and harder, you need a little Longer break. So yeah, this era was going to be longer pace was going to be inevitable with pitchers going for more velocity and more strikeouts anyway. So, you know, it's just a contributing factor that we can't do anything about until pitchers find out that throwing harder is bad for them. All right. So we will take a quick break and we'll be back with Alex Spear of the Boston Globe to talk about the Red Sox. Last season, only one of our 30 team preview podcast guests correctly predicted the team's win total. I'm sure because he is smart and self-effacing, he would tell you that that was completely a fluke. But nonetheless, he is here to take a victory lap and celebrate his triumph. He (laughs) correctly predicted that the Red Sox in 2017 would have, what was it, 93 wins. And he is back to join us again and perhaps repeat his correct prediction. He is Alex Spear. He covers the Red Sox and other sports for the Boston Globe. Hey, Alex. I would like to clarify that I that I, I view predictions as being an exercise in absurdity and you know and i meant merely to highlight that fact by saying i have no freaking idea why don't i just say the same win total that they had one pre one year previously (laughs) so i'll take zero credit for it and i'll I'll suggest further that it is uh yeah it's it's an exercise uh, at least on a personal level in uh in self-deceit to think that i know anything (laughs) yes well you have to do it again (laughs) Yay! <laughs> yeah. Yes, I think we completely agree about the value or lack of value of predictions, and yet we perpetuate this practice. We're part of the problem. So I wanted to start off by asking you about your essay about the Red Sox in the BP Annual because it's really fascinating and it touches on a lot of the things that we've discussed on this podcast over the last few years, a lot of league-wide trends. And you make the case that the Red Sox were sort of first a, a victim and then maybe more recently a beneficiary of a lot of trends that we've talked about, whether it was pitching low in the zone and the expanding strike zone and then the opposite and the home runs and the swing change and the airball revolution, all of that. The Red Sox have been fighting and wrestling with those things just like every other team and maybe were hurt by it first and helped by it more recently. So can you walk through that timeline? To me, it's kind of an interesting case study in how quickly teams can go from looking uh, really behind to really far ahead, and then it all changes around again. Um, In 2015, you may recall that the Red Sox uh, made the decision uh, that looked bad at the time and looked worse worse, uh, as it uh, it unfolded to go with the quote-unquote aceless rotation um, in which rather than having, rather, you know, they let John Lester, they traded away John Lester and and John Lackey the previous year, uh, and then 
uh, replaced them with guys like Justin Masterson and Wade Miley and Rick Porcello. So a bunch of two-seam guys all working at the bottom of the strike zone. They signed Pablo Sandoval. They signed Hanley Ramirez, guys who had thrived, you know, hitting ground ball singles or hard line drives in the era of the downward shift of the strike zone. And the the Red Sox essentially made a bunch of bets all based on knowledge that was, or all based on information that proved to be outdated by about the middle of that 2015 season. So it went catastrophically wrong. Uh, their rotation was a horror show on a regular basis. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, they were devastatingly behind the curve in that particular, in reacting to this development that they thought they had been seeing around the league, uh, in part because. Around the middle of 2015, uh, regardless of whether or not Major League Baseball wants to say it or not, something changed with what happens when baseballs got up in the air and hitters started responding really quickly to this idea that, hey, a ball that I was hitting to like almost the warning track is suddenly ending up eight rows deep. Um, And so everyone started hitting fly balls all over the place, especially on low pitches. And so the game the game changed radically. Pablo Sandoval's value went into the toilet. Uh, and uh, the, the value of these guys who were sinker ball pitchers uh, who were suddenly giving up higher than ever uh, fly ball rates also went down precipitously. So the Red Sox kind of rethought what they were doing. Uh, they hired a very bright guy in Brian Bannister to oversee their pitching development mm-hmm. um, and a lot of their pitching strategy. Uh, and generally as a group, it's not just Brian Bannister. Their former pitching coach, Carl Willis, was on board with this. So was Dana Lovangie. By last year, they were a team that was throwing more fastballs at the top of the strike zone than any other. They had absolutely changed their game plan completely from where they were building towards in 2015. And they were really good doing this. Um, But, you know, that's that's less a commentary. uh, That's not a commentary necessarily on like the high fastball as a strategy in its own right, but rather on the rapidly changing game state in which what seems like a really good idea in one instant in Major League Baseball a couple of months later may turn out to be an utterly terrible one. So uh, the advantage for teams is not in identifying a good strategy, but instead in remaining flexible and and, uh, and able to adapt to uh, a game state that, that's changing faster than at any other point in history. Another thing the Red Sox did uh, attempt to do last season, if if the, before they went with an aceless rotation, last year they went in with an Ortizless lineup, uh, sort of uh, <laughs> missing, of course, that middle of the lineup thumper. And there are a number of players who sort of declined performance-wise without Ortiz, whether or not it was related don't really know, but this would have been an interesting question before the Red Sox officially agreed to terms with J.D. Martinez, because presumably Martinez is now there to sort of serve or fill the Ortiz role. But what was your perspective on what happened with the Red Sox offense last season? Because there were a lot of players who should be good hitters, and there are the, many of those players still remain, but it's still the team just struggled to score runs. And even in this age of fly balls and, and balls leaving the yard, the Red Sox couldn't hit for power. So what, where exactly did they get left behind or was it really just missing Ortiz for one full season? I would suggest that, you know, everyone missed David, but, uh, but I, I think that it was a little bit more, you know, multi multifarious than that. So they did miss Ortiz. They missed him. They missed his presence in the lineup. I mean, this was a guy who was absolutely incredible as a 40 year old and clearly their best hitter. I think he led the AL and OPS and a lot of other stuff in his final season. They missed the psychological presence. I, I do think that was real that you know guys in the lineup 
started, you know, started feeling like they, you know, like they needed to be someone other than what their natural skill set was. Um, and that led them into some, you know, bad habits at different times and some, uh, and some, you know, kind of self-imposed pressure that made it harder for them to just, you know, to just play in a relaxed state that, uh, that maximized their talents. I also think that, you know, you talk about the fly ball stuff. They didn't hit that many fly balls. So that was a problem for them too. Um, I think that part of that was because they had a ton of guys who were really injured last year. Uh, Xander Bogart spent most of the season battling hand and wrist injuries, which, you know, as everyone knows for hitters, that's, you know, that's, that's your money. Ma- the, the hands and wrists are money makers. And so when, when that starts to Go downhill, it becomes really difficult to drive the ball in a fashion that uh, is familiar. Dustin Pedroia, I think, had like uh, – Dustin Pedroia had almost no, like a shockingly low number of barrels last year. Um, I think he had something like seven on the year in about – in over 400 plate appearances because he could not use his legs to drive the ball at all. Mookie Betts dealt with some hand injuries at times. Jackie Bradley Jr. had some knee problems. Uh, a lot of guys had different things that um, that impeded their ability uh, to be their – best kind of hitter. I also think that uh, I also think that they weren't necessarily being um, encouraged to take advantage of the fly ball revolution, right? Like, you know, at one point uh, I was talking with a member of the organization who was like, who basically, you know, was disparaging uh, the, you know, launch angle data and, you know, and the kind of Josh Donaldson type of approach and said, you know, really, please don't, don't talk to me about that, that launch angle crap. And, you know, that, that probably didn't help. They, again, getting to that idea of flexibility, intellectual flexibility when it comes to staying on top of the trends in the game. Um, I'm not sure that they were as nimble as they needed to be in encouraging their players to do the right things. Um, you know, they, Xander Bogarts physically couldn't take advantage of it. He was in a position where all he could do was flip balls in the air to right field and hit ground balls to the pole side at Fenway Park that is an unimaginably bad combination of things so um so I, I think that there was just a whole lot going on that made the Red Sox not as good as they should have been offensively last year not as good as perhaps their true talent level quote unquote and so I think that they for they it, it was very reasonable for them to forecast improvements across the board you know just from improved health and maybe uh, a different offensive philosophy they did bring in Tim Hires as their hitting coach this year uh, who with the Dodgers did some very nice things in terms of getting them to hit the ball in the air more but then they also added JD Martinez and so they should be pretty good offensively so the Red Sox didn't go on a, a massive spending spree this offseason I suppose they could still add to their team but they brought back Eduardo Nunez they signed JD Martinez of course but they did this while a lot of other teams, a lot of other traditionally high spending teams were economizing for one reason or another. And so now it looks like, according to the forecasts, I believe the Red Sox will have the highest payroll in baseball by quite a bit, it looks like. And just looking back through the COTS contracts era, just back to 2000 or so, I think there's only one previous time that the Red Sox have had the highest payroll in baseball in 2001, and it was by about 300000 dollars over the Yankees of that year so and I'm I'm fairly confident that wouldn't account for luxury tax you know luxury tax payroll either so yeah and, and that might be opening day yeah so yep. so what should we make of this fact that the Red Sox now seem to be baseball's biggest spenders is it something we should commend hey they're going for it they're trying to put the best team they can on the field is it a symptom of inefficiency is there a reason why they are not quite as concerned about going over the luxury tax as other teams well a bunch of different things so they are 
exactly as concerned as other teams about going over the luxury tax, which is to say they were desperate to get under it to yeah. reset one time only last year. They did it. They did it at some cost by passing on Edwin Encarnacion, uh, who is himself available at a very reasonable contract price in order to sign Mitch Moreland. And, you know, they they were they were hell bent on getting under the threshold last year mm -hmm. so that they could spend bigger going forward, which they also had to be because. Uh, this really talented young core that they have is starting to get expensive. So it is a good case study in the idea that, you know, that really good young homegrown core does start to get expensive really fast. You know, once they once they go through the you know, once you get to the uh, to generally the second arbitration year for a bunch of those guys, that payroll expands awfully quickly. So even before they signed J.D. Martinez, they were going they were probably were on a pace to be the highest spending team in Major League Baseball this year. They were probably going to be around 210 at that point. Now they're looking like they're more like 232 um, from a luxury tax payroll uh, from a you know, from a CBT payroll standpoint. So, you know, so there, there's also some drastic inefficiency that goes along with that because, you know, Hanley Ramirez is in the final guaranteed year uh, of his four-year $88 million contract. He's had a negative war in a couple of years of that contract. Pablo Sandoval, I guess, is going to be a zero-war player for them this year, which will be his best offensive, his best, <laughs> his most productive season with the Red Sox. So, that, and that's at a cost of $19 bucks. Uh, that that dollar figure that you're that you're mentioning, by the way, the two thirty or that I'm just mentioned, the two thirty two, doesn't even account right. for the cost of Rusne Castillo, who is an eleven million dollar albatross in AAA for another year coming up. So there there have been some there have been some bad inefficiencies, but I, I think you know they've had some big money signings with obviously Price and Rick Porcello, and then they just have rapidly growing uh, payroll for. Uh, for the efficient members of their roster as well. So in, uh, let's call it classic Dave Dombrowski fashion, uh, according to Baseball America and their organizational rankings, the Red Sox have gone from 4th to 14th to this year 24th. So the farm system has thinned, but of course that's for multiple reasons. One, there has been a number of trades, and also there have been graduations. And so you look at the Red Sox, and with any Dombrowski special, you figure the farm system is going to be thin and players are going to get moved out of it. But there are still some, uh, as you mentioned, there's the young homegrown core that's starting to get expensive, but there are also elements of the core that are not yet expensive by anyone's standards, except for, I guess, ours. But <laughs> last year, Rafael Devers made his Major League debut, held his own, and, and Andrew Benintendi put in his first full season in the Major Leagues. And you could say maybe Benintendi was a little bit disappointing, but really that's just holding to him to an Aaron Judge standard, which isn't fair. But the core of this question is essentially what, what can you say about Devers and Benintendi in terms of what you've seen from them at the Major League level so far, how you project them going forward? Because you figure... If the farm is going to be thin, and the Red Sox farm is probably going to be thin, you're going to need the, uh, the young everyday players at the major league level to be uh, to be good and to blossom into stars because you're not getting many reinforcements from the farm. So, do you see star potential and uh, maybe let's say likely star potential in both Devers and Benintendi? I, th I think so. I I think that they're both pretty extraordinary in terms of their ability to you know to get the bat on the ball, uh, do a lot of damage with it. You know, hitting the ball, 
Like with with ease, both of those guys are able to attack pitches all over the strike zone. Their plate coverage is spectacular. Like I, I you know, you can identify specific instances for both of them. Ben Intendi at some point, even though he has really good strike zone command, last year there was a game against uh, against the Cubs in which he basically he hit a sack fly off of his shoe tops, and Joe Madden like fell off the bench, uh, basically looking at look like watching him able to able to stay on a breaking ball and get it up in the air in order to drive in a run in a meaningful situation Devers at 20 years old uh, you know just kind of his effortless ability to just loft balls over the wall and left field to the opposite field uh, he has an extraordinary ability I mean the fact that the fact that even if it was for a month that like every day the the comparisons for Devers at the start of his career were like Babe Ruth and you know <laughs> and a few Hall of Famers it was it was pretty crazy to watch and you know he's doing this as a 20 year old who did not ever look, you know, he, the, the fact that he drilled that, what that 103 mile an hour fastball from Araldis Chapman out to left field in Yankee stadium was a pretty good barometer of the fact that there's, there's something special in terms of how both of their hands work. Uh, both of their natural offensive approaches work. You know, I, I certainly think that it's fair to assume that both of them will have uh, bumps along the road, but um, but all of the components are there for for both of those players to be pretty exceptional, and you know, and as part of that Red Sox score that we're talking about, their their farm system has clearly thinned out. I mean, they in the upper levels, it's uh, it's it's pretty uh, it's pretty thin in terms of finding guys who have a chance to be impact contributors. But last year, they also, I believe, had the most games in in the major leagues by uh, of played by guys who are 24 years old or younger, which suggests that. You know, they've graduated a really good group that should be able to keep them in a pretty good spot for a few years to come. Scanning the Red Sox depth chart at Roster Resource, they have three guys who are listed as either questionable or doubtful for the start of the season. Dustin Pedroia, Eduardo Rodriguez, and Stephen Wright. And then there's David Price, who is not listed as either of those things, but is kind of questionable, at least until we see him pitch and stay healthy. So... Which of those guys, I mean, would you expect any of them to linger past the start of the season as far as being an injury concern, whether it's Pedroia coming back from knee surgery or, you know, Price coming back from elbow issues, which are always somewhat frightening? I think that their their expectation is that Price is going to be a rotation regular. Um, he was really good down the stretch. His stuff was fantastic when he got back into the, uh, into the Red Sox bullpen uh, last September. And honestly, uh, especially given what they face in the Yankees and the ability to wipe out righties, uh, the, what Price was throwing at the end of the season, that fastball cutter combination on, on the hands of right-handers, he is absolutely pivotal to what the Red Sox are doing. Like, you can make a pretty compelling case to me that he is the he is the single most important kind of neutralizing weapon uh, that they have in their uh, in on their pitching staff against that against that Yankees group. You know, so their their assumption is that he's going to be healthy. Whether or not he he does hold up, that's that's going to be an interesting one because he certainly there were times at which they were optimistic about his ability to return last year, and those proved to be his, his time on the sidelines exceeded expectations on multiple occasions. But um, you know, so. So far, there, there have been no indications since he returned to games last year that he will be anything but healthy uh, entering this year. Pedroia is the really interesting one because he's, you know, he's slated to be out until at least May. At least that was what they announced at the time of the surgery. And even when he does come back, as much as the Red Sox say, oh, we think that he can be the same player that he's always been once he does return with this kind of uh, regenerated cartilage thanks to a cadaver that was uh, <laughs> for 
from which it was plucked, which is yeah. pretty gross. You know, it, it's going to be really interesting to see how they manage his playing time going forward, because I think that there's some sentiment throughout the organization that maybe his new normal is more like 100 to 120 games a year rather than the 140, 150 in order to try to preserve him and keep him healthy. So the re-signing of Eduardo Nunez at a time when these questions exist around Pedroia is not a coincidence. So officially, the Red Sox have signed J.D. Martinez. I know they reworked some terms, but it should still be five years and $110 million with, uh, what was it, a couple of opt-outs? Now three. They they, they tacked one more on, which is exciting. Another opt-out? <laughs> yeah, three sure. Three opt-outs in a five-year <laughs> contract? After two, th- after years two, three, and four, I suppose that the ultimate opt-out is after year five, for that matter. So really, Wait. you're looking at four opt-outs. So there were questions about J.D. Martinez's health, and they added an opt-out? His uh, value well, went up? I, I think that uh, in order to uh, in order to find common ground on the idea that, uh, that the Red Sox were building in some language to protect themselves in case of uh, recurrence or deterioration of this foot issue that uh, that he endured uh, at the start of last season, there, there was probably some compromise there. This is what the Bryce Harper contract is going to look like. Opt out every <laughs> single year. Anyway, with J.D. Martinez on board, it look, that one felt inevitable all offseason long. It just felt... I don't need to explain. Felt inevitable. But what what was interesting is even even as this was dragging along and, you know, there were reports that J.D. Martinez was unhappy with the Red Sox, the Diamondbacks were sort of, they were considered to be the only other team in the market and the Diamondbacks don't even have that much money to spend. So as someone who was following this very closely, uh, I'm sure, is there any sense that the Red Sox were essentially bidding against themselves? Like, could they have held out for an even smaller deal than the one they gave out? I, I believe that their their final the final five year one hundred ten million dollar agreement is pretty close to where their initial offer was. Uh, I don't think that they were bidding against themselves per se. I think that they were open to you know in, for the sake of getting a deal done. Uh, I think that the the prime area of negotiation was with the opt outs and that sort of stuff. But um, I, I don't think that they were. I don't think they were saying okay like. We were at $15 million a year, and now we're going to jump at 22. Uh, they, they had pretty good awareness of where the market was and of the absence of alternatives for Martinez throughout the winter. So, uh, you know, I, I think that Martinez, I think that honestly, like, it's a situation where both sides ended up in a spot where they feel pretty good. And opt-outs are a funny thing because they unquestionably add player value. But at the same time, there is also this kind of theoretical value in them for organizations in that if you believe that his riskiest years are are, you know, are in front of him, right? And there's no question that each year of the contract, the risk does go up. Uh, then, you know, then maybe there's a, there's a point at which you're happy to see a player opt out. So, um, you know, opt-outs aren't just a unit, like as much as opt-outs at one point were portrayed as being always detrimental to a team, I don't think they're necessarily always viewed that way anymore. So, um, so I think that the Red Sox were, you know, kind of comfortable. I mean, they really weren't engaging with Martinez for a long period of time until, from what I understand, Martina, you know, Scott Boris picked up the phone and got back in touch with them last Monday. So with the Red Sox having signed J.D. Martinez, of course, now this uh, this forces something of a mishmash between Mitch Moreland and Hanley Ramirez. And Hanley's been optimistic, saying he feels great. You know, we've heard all these things before, but Hanley feels good. And the Red Sox signed Mitch Moreland for 
a couple of years. So are they are they are these players unhappy to have their roles diminished? Or did the Red Sox they must have expected that they would have wound up with JD Martinez at some point this offseason because again, this is just how the market developed. But now you've got Hanley and uh, and Mitch Moreland essentially sharing one position. Is is this something do you see a quality platoon here or is there any sort of risk of let's say maybe player dissatisfaction? That that's we that one is an interesting to be determined phenomenon uh, because I you know Henley Ramirez also has an option uh, a vesting option at twenty two million bucks that would kick in with four hundred ninety seven plate appearances um, and I think that the likelihood that he gets there has gone down dramatically. Hanley has said all the right things throughout his all you know this, this thus far this spring saying that his interest is primarily in championships and you know we should also appreciate the fact that this is someone who in his baseball career has now made over one hundred fifty million bucks so uh, what he prioritizes is you know could change nonetheless he's also accustomed to playing on a very regular basis whenever he's healthy which isn't all the time how it works itself out i i'm fascinated to see what we do know is that neither hanley nor jd martinez has a great track record of remaining on the field all the time mitch moreland has traditionally been used as more of a platoon guy until last year when he was setting a career high in games played and the red sox could probably benefit from getting more rest for all of their outfielders. I, I think that um, they're trying to scale back playing time, frankly, for everyone in their lineup now. So theoretically, you could finagle it in a way that uh, that maybe everyone feels involved, but that seems hard to do. Whether or not it ends up being uh, being so, I think maybe a byproduct of injuries. But that vesting option is uh, has always been sitting there for the Red Sox to end of such a concern, given the actual performance of Ramirez, that I had wondered whether or not they might even consider releasing him before this season, just so that it wasn't an obstacle for them moving forward. I guess there's also something of a struggle for playing time at catcher where you have Christian Vasquez set, you have Blake Swihart ready to be the backup seemingly. So is Sandy Leone going to end up as the odd man out here? Well, you know, Blake Swihart is being talked about not as the backup catcher, but instead with Leon as the as the number two catcher uh. and Swihart as a kind of as a multi-positional you know, he can catch, he can maybe play some first base, some left field. There's some belief that he has a chance to adapt to third base, which is a position that he played a fair amount in high school. Alex Cora has even talked about having him at second base some. So theoretically, Blake Swihart could emerge as a super utility guy. But uh, if the Red Sox do keep Moreland and Ramirez and Martinez, then the number of, avail- of available spots that they have on their bench becomes uh, kind of limited. And it, it starts to get interesting to figure out how exactly that's going to happen. I mean, I, I do think that there's uh, there's going to be an emergent. There's at some point there is going to be a question about whether or not the Red Sox are best positioned if they have Leon as like their traditional backup catcher, or if they uh, or if they move on from him and find a way to have Swihart as a kind of uh, as a kind of more new age backup catcher slash um, phenomenon. Um, and ultimately, I think that Swihart's performance is going to go a long way in dictating that. And so I'm not going to repeat the oversight that we had in our Tigers preview podcast and fail to ask about a managerial change. So I'll ask about the managerial change. (laughs) So what was it, do you think, that sealed John Farrell's fate as Red Sox manager and to the extent that we can tell? What should Red Sox fans expect from Alex Cora? How do you think that will change anything about the team's operation? Well, I I think that you know when we've talked about a number of their off of, of their position players underperforming expectations last year. When you see, let's say, seven of your nine positions performing below expectations, uh, then typically 
teams will make changes with common denominators rather than with uh, rather than trying to figure out, you know, figure out turning over the seven guys. So, um, you know, so I think that there was a, a sense that uh, a sense that the impact that Farrell and his coaching staff, um, you know, we talked about the launch angle stuff uh, a little bit earlier, um, among other things, could make uh, had maybe run its course, and that it was uh, it was time to get a new voice, particularly someone like Cora, who was part of an Astros team that did so much of what the Red Sox would like to see their guys do more of, you know, more off- a more aggressive offensive approach, uh, perhaps rather than working discipline counts, looking to get the ball in the air rather than just kind of you know making you know, making contact, you know, looking for aggressive base running, but, you know, but not at the expense of efficient base running. Whereas the Red Sox kind of had this uh, charge of the light brigade issue last year where uh, they, they, they spent a whole lot of time in the Valley of death uh, when it came to, uh, to trying to, you know, to trample, trample their way to an extra 90 feet for sometimes for good reason, because they weren't hitting any home runs. Uh, but at, at sometimes it became a little bit too extreme uh, to their detriment and in, in giving away opportunities. So, I think that there were just a lot of factors that the Reds that led the Red Sox to believe that um, that they were going to be in a position where they needed to reconsider the messages that were being given to their players and their coaching staff and how they were being given. And so, bringing Cora over from a more kind of data driven organization like the Astros, um, that you know, one in which uh, one that had embraced. Um, embraced forward-looking concepts pretty aggressively. Um, I think that that was felt to be the right fit, particularly, you know, the fact that Cora is 42. He was a teammate of Dustin Pedroia. A lot of these guys have at least some familiarity with him from his playing days. Uh, He is fluent in Spanish, which is, uh, he's, he's fluently bilingual, which allows him to connect to a broad, uh, set of the population, particularly a Red Sox team that has, you know, young, talented players like a Devers, uh, who is, you know, they, they want to make a guy like Devers be as comfortable as possible. Uh, and so giving him the opportunity to have direct communication with, uh, with the manager in his native language is a pretty significant thing. Um, I think that all of that was viewed as, uh, uh, like there, there were a whole lot of factors, I think, that led the Red Sox to make the turn that they did. When Christian Vasquez was coming up through the system and when he first emerged at the major league level, he was considered a defensive specialist, kind of a, I don't know, Austin Hedgesy, or there are several other examples from the 90s and prior decades. So other defensive specialist catchers. But last year, uh, Christian Vasquez had one of the biggest drops in ground ball rate in baseball, which was interesting. And in the second half, he actually... Not only did he hit 314, but he slugged 453. Now, I've heard two, a few different perspectives. One that, of course, some players can change their swings, aim up, and get better. And then I've also heard the perspective from some players that these things are sort of temporary and that players will ultimately just sort of find their level. So question for you, can Christian Vasquez actually hit? I, I think that there's there's a chance that he can be more than he'd been prior to that surge last year. Um, I, if you look at his history coming up through the minors, he has never been a fast track guy. He was a guy who frequently would repeat levels and he would kind of perform in this very modest fashion for a while and kind of hit a hit a bunch of dribblers. And then all of a sudden the next year he'd repeat at the level and things would start to look a little bit different. For instance, many years ago in, in Greenville, he was a he was just an offensive non-factor one year returned the next year and hit, I think, something like 17 to 20 home runs in single A. Um, And that was still as a relatively young player for the level. Uh, And you'll find that 
with him throughout his career. Maybe it was a half season that he went where he was making little offensive impact. And then all of a sudden he kind of figured some things out and started driving the ball in a different way in Salem, or maybe it was in, uh, in Portland at different times. So um, he is a guy who I think is a, is a pretty intelligent baseball mind in someone who shows good aptitude and feel for the game in a way that I think, you know, looking at his performance in any one window and assuming that, uh, assuming that a poor performance is representative of who he is, maybe a little bit of maybe kind of unfair to what his career track has been. I don't think that he's ever going to be like a legit masher or anything. I, I think that no matter matter what he's going to be a bottom third of the order guy uh but he's one who could have some kind of you know sneaky doubles power and be a decent hitter for average because his hands work really well that's why he's a that's why he's a freaking good catcher. Uh, so I, I think that, you know, that that same trait, especially as he's figured out some mechanical things with regards to his leg setup um, and, you know, timing and, you know, implementing a timing mechanism, that sort of thing. You know, he, he has a chance to be uh, something other than an offensive zero. He's, he's more than he can be more than just a pure glove. I don't think I've ever heard anything as modest as sneaky doubles power. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. The Touché. Red Sox appear poised to have a four-fifths left-handed rotation, everyone aside from Rick Porcello, and possibly an entirely right-handed bullpen. I guess Robbie Scott could sneak in there potentially, but it, it could be righties all the way down. So is this something that anyone should be concerned about, that the team is at all concerned about? I suppose if they were that concerned about it, they would have done something about it. But I wonder whether it's even an issue. I was reading something Joe Sheehan wrote recently about how there aren't a lot of great left-handed hitters in the AL and specifically the AL East right now. And so maybe the bullpen thing isn't a big deal. I don't know if it matters that there aren't a lot of great left-handed hitters. You'd think that maybe just left-handed hitters, period, I, I guess you would get just as much advantage from having a platoon specialist against a mediocre left-handed hitter as you might against a really good one. So I don't know if that actually matters, but are they at all worried or looking to correct these imbalances in any way? I don't think that they're necessarily they're they're interested in looking at their kind of depth options so you know it's interesting that you pose those two questions right like the all left-handed rotation complemented almost all left-handed rotation complemented by the almost all right-handed bullpen like there's part of your Mm -hmm. answer right like the in all likelihood they're flipping you know they're flipping around lineups uh with their bullpen anyway and so that's that's part of the question the other the other part of the question is uh, or rather the other part of the answer is that it's rendered irrelevant if they have really good right-handed Relievers, yeah. right? Guys who can, uh, if they have guys who can wipe out, you know, wipe out batters regarded of their, regardless of their handedness, no worries. Um, so I, I think that Carson Smith is a pretty pivotal figure because his fastball and slider, because of the arm, like that low arm slot tends to be very uncomfortable for guys of both handedness. And he could be really, really good and very important. If Tyler Thornburg gets healthy, uh, he had phenomenal splits against lefties uh, with the Brewers in, in 2016. I think that he held them to like a 115 average or something stupid like that. But so if those guys are healthy and effective, then who cares? Uh, about the dearth of the relative dearth of lefties. If they're not, then they could be in the position that they were in last year, where everyone in front of Craig Kimbrell had dramatic platoon splits, and it was a it was really this kind of nightly puzzle that was uh, that they had to piece together in a in a kind of challenging fashion um, under John Farrell. And they did a great job of it last year, by the way. What they did in their bullpen management, they had you know their win probability added was phenomenal. They did a great job of managing the assets that they had. 
had. And that was with the dearth of lefties last year. So uh, in answer to your question, I guess it doesn't necessarily matter. It theoretically could. They're going to give a long look to some of their left-hand can- can- like depth candidates. Uh, they have this guy named Bobby Pointer, who is whose stuff is completely underwhelming. If you look at a radar gun or whatever, like he's an 88 to 92 guy, uh, but he had a sub one ERA last year in two thirds of a season in double A and just seems to get lots of guys out consistently. And then they also have down in tr- a guy who, w- who will be expected to start in triple A, Williams Jerez, who's a lefty who throws kind of in the mid nineties with the makings of maybe a useful slider or, and or split and, and or splitter. And so those guys could help, but uh, I do think that, you know, we're kind of moving into a post, you know, post lefty specialist universe. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we will wrap up the same way we always wrap up. This is your your time to no. shine. Let me guess. Ninety three <laughs> wins. <laughs> you know, I I, th- I feel like uh, I feel like this is uh, this is a year in which we should just assume that like that like three teams are going to get like you know are going to end up or four teams in the American League are going to end up with like fifty percent of all of the wins. Mm-hmm. You know, so like I, let's let's just forecast. Uh, let's just forecast the. I'm I'm going to go up not just on the Red Sox, but I'm going to suggest that the Astros, Red Sox, Yankees, and Cleveland all end up with 105 wins this year. Parlay. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, you have a proven track record. So I guess we should take that to the bank. <laughs> All right. You can read Alex, of course, at the Boston Globe. You can find him on Twitter at his name, Alex Spear. Thank you very much for coming back. I, I am uh, grateful to do so. And uh, apparently there's a dog in the background that also <laughs> is happy to be a part of this. So thank you. <laughs> yes. And thanks to your dog for keeping quiet. It's not now. mine. And so I'm probably going to do away with it. Very, no, no, no. Don't say that. I'm, I love animals, but uh, I'm looking after my in-laws tiny dog and uh yeah i'm, I'm not happy about it right now <laughs> all right well yeah. neither is he okay well thanks alex and <laughs> foster dog <laughs> thanks so much okay we will take a very quick break now and we'll be back in just a moment with red's beat writer for the athletic cincinnati as well as effectively wild patreon supporter and facebook group member see trent rosecrans All right, time to make a departure from our traditional subject matter and actually discuss the Cincinnati Reds with the person we often discuss the Cincinnati Reds with. See Trent Rosecrans, who covers the Reds now for the Athletic Cincinnati. Hey, Trent, how are you? Well, on brand, I think it's pretty telling. This is the first time I think I've been on to discuss the Reds. Is that true? So yeah, I guess that the, <laughs> that's probably true. <laughs> so I am the person you talk to the Reds about, about the Reds with. So, yes, this is the first time. <laughs> so has Joey Votto said anything cerebral and endearing yet today or not quite yet? I haven't talked to him today, but I'm sure he has. <laughs> yeah. And then, of course, he had the epic video on um, Sunday, the sideline interview, which everybody saw the nipple thing. Yep. That's 100% Joey. (laughs) So I was thinking about um, Jim doing a segment, Jim Day, G-Y-M Day, with Jim Day, J-I-M Day. As I suck in my gut. I was thinking of my man right here throwing on a tank, coming in the gym with 
uh, a different player each segment, doing some exercises, seeing how we get ready for the game. And uh, I was thinking of being the first one. And um, I was wondering what the fans at home thought about that. Maybe shoot you some messages on your Twitter and, and come up with some ideas. What do you think? I would be up for it, but I don't know about the tank top, man. I don't think I can pull off the tank. Is it a nipple thing? <laughs> Does he say things off the record, or is everything on the record with him? You know, there will be off, the, but with usually with Joey, it's only to help provide context. Uh-huh. And he will he thinks about what he says, and he thinks about how things he says will be perceived. <laughs> you know, it's Joey Votto. Everything he does, including the words he uses, has a purpose, and it has thought behind it. His interviews are a lot like his at bats. You know, you have to uh, you have to be very good, or he'll just sit there and watch, and then walk away. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think that uh, you exercise, right? You get in the gym sometimes. I, I walk. You walk. I, that's not exercise to a professional athlete, but nowadays at my age, I walk. Well, you and I, treadmill. You and I have something in common. They pay me to walk. <laughs> <laughs> that's very good. You often hear with Vado, you know, if he were in a different market, he would be a super duper star. Is that true? Do you do you buy that if he were playing in New York or something? Would he be the face of baseball, quote unquote? I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Um, Joey's not one who encourages that and uh, or embraces that. I think Joey is very comfortable being where he is. Um, and that is in Cincinnati, and that is not being the face of baseball. I think he likes to be able to control that message, um, and it's a little bit harder in a lot of other places. So I think he likes, you know, again, it's, it's <laughs> it sounds like cliche and, and, and boring to say it's a lot like his hitting. He likes to figure out where he can be in the best control of his situation, what to, you know, to control the count, to control a little bit of everything, and it's easier to do that in a Cincinnati market, or it's easier to do that when you're ahead in the count. Um, so he, he's, he's absolutely fascinating. I've, I've been talking to him for a dozen years now. And I, I, <laughs> I always say that you can tell me anything about Joey Votto and I'd believe it. Um, he's that different and he's that, um, set in control of what he uh, presents. Not to just, only talk about Joey Votto and the Reds, but you know, he he's he's the guy who's been there the longest. He's the best one. Have you noticed anything different about how he feels maybe about just being in the middle of this rebuild process? And and if you're the Reds, you hope that you are pulling out of it pretty soon. I don't know if they're going to. It's a very difficult uh, division, very difficult league, but Votto is the guy there, but he's also obviously aware of the fact that he is getting older. His skills can last only for so long. So how how content is he to still be in the middle of uh, of this process? I, I think he would like to see some progress. I mean, he's he talks he talked about that on the first day that he got here that um, he's tired of not winning. He's tired of the rebuild, and he thinks that uh, Reds fans are. I don't think it's a win or move me kind of deal, but I think that he is being more vocal that he would like to see that corner being turned. That being said, I I think if anybody understands the process uh, as far as a player, it's Joey. I mean, he, he, he sees the whole field, if you will. And um, I think he understands where they are, but but, um, he would like to see some progress. The big question about the Reds in the last couple of seasons really has been the pitching. 
hasn't even really been a question so much as a a depressing answer. So Jeff has chronicled that, of course, the entire sub-replacement pitching staffs, and there's some hope, I suppose, on the horizon. So there's Luis Castillo, namely, but is there other hope? Where is the pitching going to come from if it's going to come from anywhere this season? Well, here's the one thing. When you look at last year, somebody asked me, like, are they going to lose 100? I'm like, no, they didn't lose 100 last year. And I think there's some teams that are better in their division and some teams that are worse. But, you know, do you know who the top two pitchers were in innings pitched last year? Can you take a guess? Uh, uh, Scott Feldman. <laughs> Scott Feldman was number two. Oh, All right. Oh, nice one, Jeff. Uh, wait, hold on. I'm not going to cheat. That's the that's the easy one to get. Oh no. <laughs> uh, hold on. No. Um, we can do this. Michael Lorenzen. Yeah, Rysel Iglesias. Nope. <laughs> Uh, I, the hint is he is now pitching for the Samsung Lions. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> exactly. Tim Adam. Uh, what? Wanna, no. You know, yeah. yeah no, yes. you're, Tim you're lying to us on a podcast. <laughs> Uh, you know, you can go to Fangraphs. I don't know if you know about this website. It's, it's, it's fantastic. I use it all the time. <laughs> And uh, they have this advanced stat called innings? innings pitched. <laughs> yeah. Sam Adelman. We tend to look at the no more shit. advanced yeah. stats, Trent. That's why we didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, that's that's what this team dealt with last year. And that wasn't by design because all respect to my fellow athletic columnist, Tim Adelman, can read uh, his travails in Korea on theathletic.com. <laughs> How's that for that plug? Um, but, you know, this is a team that didn't get what they were expecting their five guys that they started with spring in they just you know they didn't pitch anthony di scofani who is a very good pitcher when healthy i think he's a guy that when healthy um anybody would like to have him in his rotation uh he uh, talked to him this morning he is finally feeling good um now feeling good in february is different than being ready for opening day he was the opening day starter each of the last two years named the opening day starter each of the last two years only to be scratched and not at pitch at all last year. So you add a capable starter like him. You hope that Homer Bailey is better. You're, you're paying him a lot of money. And if he can be league average for the $20 million or whatever he's making, the, the talent's there. You just keep adding, and it's like the pitching can't be as bad as it was last year. Um, now, we said that last year, too. <laughs> <laughs> so there could be some change. But when you see guys like Luis Castillo, another guy is Tyler Malley. Tyler Malley is a really impressive young pitcher that, um, you know, my favorite story is from Darren Ebert said when he was in Billings, this is in rookie ball. Malley goes at eight innings. I think he was at 68 pitches and he had to call back to the Reds and said, uh, can, can I let him go nine in rookie ball? Nobody goes nine in rookie ball. <laughs> and, and they're like, well, if he's in his pitch count, sure. So Malley goes about and finishes it out in 80 pitches. And Ebert just takes his, his pitch counter, and after the game, he tosses it to Malley and just says, you, you got to keep this. 80 pitches, complete game, and rookie ball. So he's the guy who's very efficient and then can get it up 95, 96, and that kind of thing. He's a, he's a really – he's a sleeper that I don't think people who uh, don't pay attention to the Reds know that much about. And then you go on the – we saw flashes from Amir Garrett last year. We've seen flashes from Sal Romano and, and – um, and Robert Stevenson. You know, these are guys who have been top 50 prospects in the game. And I don't think that just 
goes away, the question is, can you develop? Did you develop? And once you're up at the big leagues, can you continue to, can you start pitching like a big league pitcher? And if you want to do that, there are probably better places to apply your trade than Great American Ballpark. Yeah. Well, so speaking of Castillo, who I mentioned, we don't even have to say seen flashes. We've seen a half season. We've seen 15 starts of him being really good and getting a ton of ground balls and getting strikeouts and just pitching like a top of the rotation guy. So obviously he is a popular sort of you know, breakout pick among people whose breakout picks are mostly people who have already broken out (laughs) really in the preceding season, which often is what breakout picks tend to be. So should we just double his seasonal stats from last year and say that's what Luis Castillo is? Or is he not that good? Or is he better than that? I think he has the potential to be better. I I read a fantastic article from one Mr. Jeff Sullivan (laughs) about that. Um, that left us all scrambling like, oh, yeah, I was going to do something like that. Or, holy crap, <laughs> yeah, he's right. So just a really great article. But, you know, this guy, his potential in a less analytic, less informed version of, of what Jeff wrote. I just remember uh, last year in Arizona, it's like the sixth inning, and he throws this change up that makes Paul Goldschmidt just kind of flail and look bad. And you're like, that's Paul Goldschmidt. <laughs> and here's this young kid with his hat barely on his head. And he's just, he's confident as hell. And he walks into Yankee Stadium with, tries a new pitch. <laughs> and it becomes one of the best pitches in baseball, at least for the second half of the season. The ceiling is is pretty high for this kid. And I can't wait to see what he does. It's one of the more intriguing things for this season to me, to see if, if this is really what he showed last year, if, if he can be even better than that. Now, it, it would not be hard to just talk to you about Vado and Castillo for this entire segment. And in fact, I think we're both fighting the urge <laughs> to do exactly that because they're the most fun Reds. But I to go back into Reds history a little bit, it was a few years ago the Reds made the uh, the Johnny Cueto trade with the Royals, and they got what I thought was a pretty strong return in, in Brandon Finnegan, John Lamb, and Cody Reed to get three pretty good young pitchers for a rental I thought was a, a good move for the Reds. But of course, uh, none of the return picks have really panned out to this point. So how much, how much trust is still in the return uh, on the red side, I know that Finnegan is coming back from injuries and, and Reed has struggled to throw strikes. So how much hope is still there? And uh, if not that, to what extent have, have the pitchers been passed up by other guys who have risen through the system like Luis Castillo? Well, I mean, Luis Castillo would rise past a lot of people. You know, Finnegan, there's still belief that he can start. He's in the rotation more or less right now. And if not, I think the fallback with with Finnegan is I don't think anybody doubts that he could be a great seven eighth inning guy if that's what happens if he if he can't start. And Cody Reed, the you know the stuff is still there with Reed. It's it's never been below the shoulders. And I think there's a lot of questions how he can handle success and failure. More importantly. Um, he just has not handled it well to this point. But again, the stuff is there. Maybe if he comes out of the bullpen and is just there to be crazy guy out of the bullpen, there's some value there. But that's more than they were going to get from Johnny Cueto at the end of the 2015 season. And, you know, that was one of those instant winner trades where it was like, oh, the Royal, the Reds did really well. The Royals obviously did well in return is, you know, Johnny Cueto um, served a purpose and a long, weird ride with his time in the Royals. So it's one of those where you look at it and it's like, maybe they didn't get the superstars. Maybe they didn't get this, this overwhelming win, but I still think it's a net positive. 
I, I can't see where it's not a net positive. Um, that same day they or that same couple days later, they did Adam Duvall and Kairi Mea for uh, Mike Leake. And, you know, I don't know that the question has been the return that the Reds have got set aside the Chapman trade in these trades. It's been the timing. You know, I, I think most people thought, you know, at 2014 All-Star break is really when this should have all started. And it did not at that time. And uh, much of that was ownership. Um, I, I still remember that day. It was a trade deadline. We were in Miami and they didn't do anything. We asked Walt Chockety. We said, hey, Walt, if you think about selling, you know, some of the big pieces, uh, Roldis Chapman, um, and I, I think maybe it was Homer then too. And he said, uh, no, you know who I work for, right? <laughs> and that was Bob Castellini who wants to win. I know it's a, it's a narrative in Cincinnati that, that he doesn't want to win. And I think anybody who sat at a game with Bob Castellini could tell you that there's nothing further from the truth. Sometimes he wants to win too badly. And they did some Band-Aid moves, I think, in you know, 14, after the 14 season. They said, well, you know, if we get Marlon Bird, that's going to help. It did not. And it's it, it was all these Band-Aids when they really needed to rip it off and start all over. And they got a late start. So I don't know if that answered the question, but it's uh, – it's been an interesting ride, and I think the biggest question has been timing more than the actual return for a lot of these deals. For the third season in the past four, Billy Hamilton posted a sub-300 on base percentage, yet <laughs> somehow his stolen base totals each year for the past four years, he's gone 56, 57, 58, and 59. So should we just pencil in 60 for this season, or can he one of these years just have a weird fluky BABIP year where he has like a 350 BABIP or something and he actually gets on base and steals 80 or something like is that within him or is he just I don't know too overmatched by major league pitching on too regular a basis to have even sort of a, an outlier fun year like that well, that's the question I think so many people in this building are, are, are have asked themselves for so many years now. Yeah. And it's so tantalizing, you know, and, and, and one of the big things to me has always been where Billy Hamilton plays. Billy Hamilton plays in the absolute worst park for a player with the skill set of Billy Hamilton. Mm. You're talking a small outfield that suppresses, well, allows home runs and, and increases home runs. It suppresses singles, doubles, and triples. You know, you think about Billy Hamilton if he's playing 81 games at Coors Field and also on the flip side on the defense, covering that yeah. kind of ground. He doesn't have to cover much ground here. He makes everybody else, like, you know, I could play left field a little bit in <laughs> Great American uh, with, with Billy out there because it's just, he covers the whole space. There's so much little, so little space there. Could it happen? I, I think a lot of people would hope it can and if I'm the Reds and it does happen and you get a fluky Babbitt uh, year and all that, you you sell real high to a team, preferably out west, um, with one of those big ballparks um, where he could he could really roam. Can it happen? Yeah. Will it? Who knows? And and I think it's it's tough to see a huge spike. He might just be what he is, which is a phenomenal defender. A, difference maker on the base paths when he gets there and it's so tantalizing to keep giving him these opportunities because it's not hard to see the skill that is there and the difference that is there 
and the difference between him and everybody else. I, one of the things I always talk about is guys like him, guys like Zach Cozart at short, I don't notice them as much when they're in watching, you know, 150 of these games a year or whatever it is. I really notice how good they are when they're not in. Mm. And there are balls that are hit and I'm automatically writing an eight in my scorebook because it's Billy Hamilton. He's going to get that. Zach Cozart's going to six, three, that ball's hit. And you know, most major league baseball players are very good at baseball. That's why they do this and can make most of the basic plays. It's when you realize what that small margin of difference is. And he can be that. And he does that defensively. And when you're talking about a pitching staff that has, to put it uh, mildly struggled every advantage that you can give that pitching staff helps and that's why billy hamilton's in center field every day because every pitcher benefits from billy hamilton there was a uh, we kind of did a i think i did a post when i was at the inquire where i just did like top 10 dan straley reactions to billy hamilton catches because <laughs> because it, like he had like five to ten catches where he just bailed out dan straley and dan straley had a good year and so much of that was there are these Billy Hamilton question catches. And there was one day where uh, near the end of the season, when Billy was hurt that somebody didn't make a catch and we're talking to Dan and Dan wasn't going to throw anybody under the bus, but I'm like, Billy makes a catch. Right. And he goes, mm-hmm. Oh yeah. <laughs> but it led to these other runs and a loss. And th- the defensive ability is so good that uh, he keeps getting that chance to, to go out every day. Speaking of Reds with sub 300 on base percentages, there was also Jose Peraza who came in at 297. And this was obviously the the centerpiece of the Todd Frazier trade, did well in limited playing time in 2016, then saw that playing time double essentially and didn't do as well. And this is another guy you look at and hope for a, a high BABIP year. And he does put the ball in play even more than Hamilton. And he got that high BABIP in 2016, not so much last year. So did that dim the hopes for him long term at all he's still obviously only what 23 he'll be turning 24 in april so are they still hoping that he will be you know a a mainstay in the middle of the infield for years to come i think i think there's a combination of that and they don't have really anyone else to play shortstop Mm -hmm. you know the teams when you look in their farm system their shortstop hopes are all at the lower levels you know, you have Alfredo Rodriguez, who, speaking of um, light bats defense, is a Cuban that they gave quite a bit of money to, that everybody who I've talked to says, well, he could play defensively right now, but, you know, it, it would be offensively just completely overmatched. Um, you have Jeter Downs, who was a high schooler that they took last year in the draft that they really like, who can hit. There's questions whether he can field. I mean, neither of those guys played above high A last year. Downs did make it out of rookie ball because he was drafted and played rookie ball, as you do when you're that age. And then Rodriguez was at, was at uh, high A Daytona. And then they have uh, Jose Israel Garcia, who is another Cuban that uh, came with less fanfare than Rodriguez. But there are a lot of people really high on him as a shortstop, but he hasn't played in the States yet. So if they are to be good, you're talking stopgap and Peraza maybe be, can be good enough, but can you carry Peraza and Hamilton in that lineup? And that's, that's kind of the question. If, if you had one of them 
and everybody else had some production like you did last year with Cozart at shortstop. You can handle that. If you just have either Billy Hamilton or Jose Peraza, you can deal with that. But having both is not uh, not optimal. Cheater Downs isn't named after Jeter, is he? He's from Columbia. I, I don't know. He is 100% named after Derek Jeter, yes. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, great shortstop prospect then. And there are questions about his <laughs> playing shortstop <laughs> yeah. defensively. So uh, <laughs> it turns out it turns out you can ask a lot of questions about the Reds and players with OBPs around 300. There's also Adam Duvall. There's Scott Shebler, two corner outfielders. You can play some defense. They hit for power, but, you know, they don't get on base. And it happened pretty quietly last year, but Jesse Winker made it to the major leagues, and he was very good. Batted 137 times, but he drew walks, hit for power, made contact, didn't strike out. I, don't, I can't say much about his defense, but uh, when you have a team in the red situation, clearly Duvall can play every day, Shebler can play every day, Hamilton, God bless him, he can play every day, but Shebler's not a franchise player. These also weren't guys you can really trade for very much, so how easy is it going to be for the Reds to fold Winker into a rotation this year? Because he clearly looks like one of the most exciting young players in this entire organization. You know, and that's kind of the question we keep asking over and over. For now, the answer is we have, let's see, you know, we have three outfield spots, seven days a week. Uh, that's 21 starts. We have four guys. That's five starts and change a week for these three guys. And that's what they're going to do, uh, at least to start. That's that's the stated plan. The hope is that somebody wins that. Now, maybe somebody loses it. That's what happened two years ago when Scott Shebler and um, Adam Duvall started the season as platoon and left and really Shebler lost it and Duvall was okay. And then once Shebler got sent down, Duvall goes on a hot streak that ends with him in uh, the all-star game. Now, can that happen again? Perhaps. And I, I think the, the thing is, I think everybody agrees that you want Jesse Winker in there as much as possible. This guy needs 500 plate appearances. He had a 375 on base percentage last year and limited time coming up, but he's a career 400 in the minors. It's what he does. You know, he's been watching Joey Votto a lot, <laughs> kind of shadowing that. And and he doesn't have the power of Joey Votto, but he has some of that approach. And I think I think uh, Pakoda has him at about a 360-ish on base. When you have a team like this, you need that 360 up in the top of the lineup, and you need it in there every day. And and again, like I said, we're talking about defensive measures. If Billy Hamilton's in there, you don't have to be very good defensively. And I think I think Jesse can be average defensively, maybe. But again, with Billy Hamilton there, you don't have to be average. I, I, I would like to see them just pick a three at some point. And I think they're hoping that that becomes obvious. And I guess also to focus on the upside and some guys who did have decent, respectable on-base percentages, there's also Scooter Jeanette and even more so Eugenio Suarez, who both had really strong seasons last year. I guess Jeanette was more of a surprise probably than Suarez. So what's the, the level of confidence about both of those guys being able to repeat or come close to repeating what they did last year? Well, I mean, I think only Scooter expects Scooter to repeat <laughs> what he did last year, and he should. I mean, that's the ballplayer mentality, but you, there's nothing in the numbers that says that was real. We saw a spike in a, a lot of those power numbers this year, uh, last year. Uh, you know, who had Scooter Jeanette in the four homers in a game uh, pool? The odds were pretty, pretty low. I think he had 98 RBI, and, and I always use RBI as a statistic of um, – availability or um of chance but you need he wasn't a starter 
he wasn't an everyday starter until after the all-star break and he still accumulated those numbers and i think 26 homers something like that i can't foresee anything like that happening again it it, it was a heck of a season and i don't know that anybody's counting on that if somebody was counting on that you might be with the nets right now you know um or somewhere else some other team that needs a second baseman so that's tough to bank on now eugenio suarez I think there's a lot of belief that last year was where he can be. It's a start, not the best that he can be. Um, We saw this guy. He's always been a pretty good hitter. We saw him break out a little bit more. Plus, the defense was fantastic. I mean, he came up a couple years ago, shaky at shortstop. Then they moved him to third before um, the 16th season. And for the first half of the 16th season, he really struggled. But since then, he's been very, very good. So much so that they're looking at Nixon Zell at other positions because they believe that much in Eugenio Torres. Last season, one of the uh, there's a player who came up for the Reds in April, pitched one game through two innings and two thirds. Face state batters got all of them out, I believe, struck out five. Through 100 miles per hour, talking about Ariel Hernandez here. Ariel Hernandez, just really electrifying stuff. This is a, a familiar story, but Hernandez, when he pitched in the majors last year, he threw 24 and a third innings, and he had 29 strikeouts and 22 walks. He uh, also pitched in AAA. Through 17 innings, he had 19 strikeouts and 19 walks. He throws as hard as anyone. He's got an incredible breaking ball in terms of how fast it is and how fast it spins, but he walks the world. Have you ever seen a pitcher with your own eyes at or around the major league level with this combination of stuff and absolutely no idea no i mean because even when chapman was at his most raw it wasn't this raw and hernandez is a guy you know it's funny because nobody talks about the 100 miles an hour when they're watching him everybody's talking about the curveball and it's like wait wait this guy also throws 100 it should be impossible for him not to be in the big leagues with two plus plus pitches like that, but he, he he shows that there's another side of it, and if he could control it, and I think, but we've seen that how often through through the history of this game that that if is a big big if, and um, he has the potential to be as dominant as anyone, but just like some people can't throw a curveball, some people can't throw strikes. If if he can harness that, he's an amazing weapon. But as it is, you know, he goes through this first inning. And he's just phenomenal. He probably went through in like 10 pitches and was just was just fantastic. Walks off the mound. And you're like, ooh, maybe he's figured out. He goes out the second inning, walks the world. And he's pulled after a third of an inning and a lot more pitches. It's a concern, but I, I don't think this is somebody they're counting on. They've they've added some veteran bullpen help to try to help that to to bolster the bullpen. But the the most important thing for this bullpen is not to be called on as much as they have been the last couple of years. Yeah, well, speaking of that, that was maybe at least partly a product of Brian Price's strategy and trying to push the bullpen a bit in some ways that most teams don't. And that was fun to watch and follow. And Price managed to save himself all last season. Somehow he he entered the season probably as one of the managers most on the hot seat slash wobbly chair and yet ended up surviving the season. So is his position solidified now or does he enter 2018 sort of just as much on the bubble as he may have been before? I think very much so on the bubble still in the last two years, really. 
from each of those last two years, it's been like, I think, you know, we get all those odd, those emails from people making bets or odds. And he's always been one of the first guys to be fired. Yet he's, he keeps surviving. Um, this pairs for anybody who pays attention to professional football. It seems to be a Cincinnati type thing. Um, cause Marvin Lewis every year is a hot seat and, uh, he is still the head coach of the Cincinnati Bengals. Mm. But I think last year he showed he's gotten better. I mean, last year they did some interesting stuff with the bullpen early to keep the record respectable until true talent showed up and they had just zero starting pitching. You know, you saw Michael Lorenzen and Rice Iglesias enter games in like, I think like the fourth and fifth innings. And they did things like that early to try to stay respectable for a while. And, and it worked. But then it caught up to them in the second half because, again, where we started with Tim Adelman and Scott Feldman leading your team in innings pitched. <laughs> right. All right. Well, we can wrap up the way we always do by pressing our guest for a win total prediction. So how bad or how good is it going to get for the Reds this year? How many games will they win? I'm thinking I, – I, I've been thinking about this since I've been listening to all these. <laughs> I've been staying right around 74 I, I think a lot of that is their division. They're in a tough division. I think they will be a better team. I don't foresee Tim Adelman leaving, leading the team in innings, nor Scott Feldman. I think those are safe since neither one of them are here. Um, and only one is presumably in this country. But I don't know. I, I think they're better. I think the offense won't be as good as it was a year ago. I think you had some career years. and You will see some regression. But um, the pitching gives me a little bit of hope that it will be better. Now, that's damning with faint praise, but I believe the pitching will be better, and that should help this team be a little bit more watchable. All right. Well, you can follow Trent on Twitter at CTrent and, of course, at The Athletic Cincinnati. Thank you very much. Thank you. Sorry we made you talk about the Reds this time. Uh, you know. <laughs> It's better than the Hall of Fame, right, Jeff? So. <laughs> Joey Votto, will he forget it? Just forget it. <laughs> yeah, I wrote that already. So, <laughs> All right. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank Bye. you. That will do it for today. You can support us and help keep the podcast going by pledging on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash effectivelywild to sign up. And five listeners who have recently done so include Scott Terry, Will Trueheart, John Brett, Kyle Bishop, and Nicholas Pelicaro. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group and chat with C. Trent at facebook.com slash groups slash effectivelywild. You can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes. Thank you to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. Please keep your questions and comments for me and Jeff coming via email at podcast at fangrass.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you're a supporter. We'll get to your emails next time. Talk to you very soon. Hey.